It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I want to start with the two-bob bombshell. That is the book Peril by Bob Woodward and Bob Costa, both of the Washington Post, of course. Book's not out yet, but this is the uh, pre-publication hype period. And boy, you know, the word bombshell in journalism gets thrown around a lot. But in this case, I think it's absolutely accurate. Now, first, I want to talk about a, a few things about Woodward himself, about the way the book is being marketed and so forth. So, Here's a, a book, you know, Costa took a leave. Woodward basically writes books, but he still has an association with the Washington Post. And I go to the Washington Post homepage today uh, because CNN, as far as I can tell, was the first to obtain and publish the explosive highlights from this forthcoming book. Um, and I thought, you know, it would be the lead story. Now, I don't know what it is in the print edition, uh, but it was way down. In fact, the first reference I could find to the revelations in the book was on the most read list. You know, it was number one, of course. Uh, it used to be uh, when a Woodward book would come out, and most of the books after the early days with Carl Bernstein, you know, he wrote on his own, um, the Post would get the first excerpt. Maybe it would be excerpted for several days. And so the Post would get the benefit of having, you know, uh, the long association with Woodward and would get the scoop. Well, then it became impossible to do that because no matter how you played the game, somebody somewhere, some reporter would get a bookstore to give an early copy uh, so you could find, you know, the juiciest tidbits and all of that. Then it became a game. And look, I've written six books and I've occasionally had to do this too, where your publisher, uh, in cooperation with the author, decides, okay, this would be a really good thing to give Politico, Axios might like this, uh, this would appeal to the New York Post. And you try to dribble out um, some of the more newsworthy or sexy items from the book to build a sense of excitement, get people to pre-order it, and all of that. But now that everybody can get, I shouldn't say everybody, but now that certain reporters can get the whole book or somebody slips them an electronic copy, and I'm not so sure, you know, this wasn't the case with CNN, the whole thing comes out at once and everybody just learns to live with it. Uh, it used to also be frustrating because the pub date, I think, is next Tuesday and the, the, you have these interviews set up. So 60 Minutes often gets the first interview because uh, Simon & Schuster publishes Woodward and Simon & Schuster was owned by CBS. uh, And you couldn't break that. So, you know, everyone's talking about your book and you can't go on TV because you promised this one. And then so-and-so gets the first morning show interview. It's a whole elaborate marketing process. Now, um, one of the criticisms of Woodward over the years, uh, and I've dealt with this myself, uh, writing about him, is that those who give him access, those who give him material, those who give him documents, those who give him the behind-the-scenes accounts, get treated most favorably in the book. Now, I hasten to add that this is a a dilemma confronted by all authors who do this kind of reporting, uh, because if somebody won't talk to you at all, it's harder to represent their viewpoint. It can also be used as a bit of a club. Uh, I, I know that Woodward and others have gone to senior officials, former senior officials, and say, look, I've got a lot of information I've gathered from other people, some other people who don't like you. Some of it reflects badly on you. I would really like to have your side. And then the, the person who may not like Woodward, may not want to be part of the book, has to make a calculation. Well, is it better for me to get my viewpoint across and counter some of the things that are being said negative about me? So it's a whole kind of dance. And then all, inevitably the criticism, and we're already seeing this here, is, well, you had this incredible newsworthy thing and you sat on it for six months. How could you not make that public? And here's my take on that as an author. And that is, you go to people. When I wrote my book, uh, Spin Cycle, 
on the Clinton White House. Uh, behind the scenes book became number two on the New York Times bestseller list. You, you go to the top people and you say, I'm working on this book. I really want to talk to you regularly about what went on behind the scenes. And I won't publish anything until the book comes out. Because the, the deal you're making with them is they will be more thoughtful. They will be more candid if you are writing a big, big treatment of of what they do, what their administration does, or, you know, it could be about a governor or a mayor or, you know, your local zoning board, and you'll put it in context. And so if you just take one thing and you rip it out and make a, a cheap headline out of it, you're, um, you're violating what you have told them. And also, when you write a book, you learn things along the way. So you might have what seems to be this great scoop uh, in the fourth week, and by the 20th week, you've learned more about it, or you've learned other things that make it seem not so exciting, or maybe you don't even use it at all because the questions have been raised. It's, you know, book writing is very intense. And finally, you know, Bob Woodward hired me at the Washington Post uh, many, many years ago. Uh, I worked for him on something that was internally called the SWAT team, the investigative unit at the paper. But as a media critic over the years, I've interviewed him in lots and lots of stories. I've interviewed him on television, and I've had to criticize him. I had to criticize him or deal with an unflattering uh, portrayal when he had to apologize to the Washington Post for holding back information in what was a big CIA leak case at the time. And he kind of publicly accepted responsibility through me when I did the story about how the Washington Post had played down, along with many other news outlets, um, any contrary or skeptical information about the Bush administration's march to war in Iraq. And Woodward told me I was part of the group thing. So, you know, we've uh, had our ups and downs over the year. Now, over the years. Now, let's get to what's in this book and how General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has now got a very big problem um, with former President Trump, with some Republicans, with some primetime commentators on Fox News, accusing him of treason or saying he should be investigated for treason or saying he should resign. So, again, I don't have the book, but according to a very detailed account in the Post, in the final months of the Trump administration, twice in fact, General Milley was so afraid that President Trump might spark a war with China that he took some steps that are, you know, by anybody's account, extremely controversial. He had two phone calls with his Chinese counterpart, General Li Zhucheng uh, of the People's Liberation Army, assuring Li that the U.S. would not strike against China. And it's clear from the telling by Woodward and Costa that there was extensive cooperation from Mark Milley. And I don't think you're going to be seeing him putting any, any statement saying he was misrepresented here. So one of the calls took place October 30th of last year. So that's four days before the election. The other came January 8th. So the first call was prompted by Milley's review of intelligence that the Chinese believed the U.S. was preparing to attack. So that's a very volatile situation. And by the way, let me just say, you know, this, we're going to attack, we're not going to attack. There cannot be war between the United States and China because they are both nuclear-armed powers. It would be mutually assured destruction in the old phrase from the armed control days. Uh, anyway, Millie calls Lee and says, uh, General Lee, I want to assure you, the American government is stable and everything is going to be okay. We're not going to attack. Um, he even went so far as to say, if there is an effort to attack China, 
we will let you know through a back channel. Generally, you and I have known each other for five years. If we're going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of time. It's not going to be a surprise. Now, that single quote uh, is damaging. You know, I mean, here we are in a competition with China. China is an adversary um, in many ways, not in all ways. And here's the top military official in the United States of America saying, we're not going to attack you, and I'll give you a heads up. Well, you know there's going to be weeks and weeks, if not months, of controversy over this. Um, in the second call, which was right after the Capitol riot, Milley said, we are 100% steady, everything is fine, but democracy can be sloppy sometimes. And Lee was still rattled. So then Milley took these other steps. Um, he didn't tell Trump about this, of course. Uh, but he believed, and this is one of these, you know, where, you, where the author gets inside the person's mind based on lots of background conversations. He believed the president had suffered a mental decline after the election, according to the book. And he communicated that to Nancy Pelosi. And this is not just well sources say, because uh, Woodward and Costa have a transcript of that phone call between the House Speaker and the Joint Chiefs Chairman. Pelosi tells the general, he's crazy. You know he's crazy. He's crazy, and what he did yesterday, I guess this is the aftermath of January 6th, is further evidence of his craziness. And Milley replies, according to the transcript, I agree with you on everything. Now, I'll just stop here and say, you know, there have been a lot of books and a lot of people who have come out, you know, John Bolton, uh, many others, uh, to say they had developed doubts about Trump's judgment, his fitness for office, and all that. You can just as easily say... Well, why didn't they do something about it then? Well, here is Milley saying he knew he was pulling a Schlesinger. That's a reference to 1974. Schlesinger, James Schlesinger, is the defense secretary. Richard Nixon is facing impeachment. It's the final days. You know, he's talking to the portraits on the wall, whatever. And he told military officials to check with him before carry out any orders. Well, here's what Milley did. He summoned his senior officers at the Pentagon. And they reviewed the procedure for launching nuclear weapons. And Milley said, look, only the president can give this order, but I also have to be involved. You have to let me know. So he didn't want like a rogue nuclear order to start a war. Milley looked each officer in the eye to affirm and asked them to affirm that they understood what he considered an oath. Okay. Uh, Milley, you know, started to have doubts about Trump, or his doubts intensified, I should say, during the business about the um, the tear gassing and the demonstration in Lafayette Park, across the street from the White House, when Milley then accompanied Trump to the church around the corner. Trump held up the Bible. Milley put out a statement. Basically, he felt he'd been used. And he put out a statement saying the military should never be involved in this kind of politics. So this was obviously brewing for a while. Another incident in peril. Um, had to do with Trump's posture toward Iran. Uh, there were discussions about how to stop the Iranian nuclear program. And Trump, I guess in private conversations, declined to rule out striking that country. Even was curious about it. Gina Haspel, then the head of the CIA, was so alarmed, this is in November, she called Milley to say, this is a highly dangerous situation. We are going to lash out for his ego. And then there's the business about uh, Mike Pence. And, you know, it's been told many times that Mike Pence did his job as vice president after the January 6th riot. He refused, under great pressure from his boss, to make any effort to overturn the results of the Electoral College. What we didn't know was that uh, Pence was making some calls, and he called one of his predecessors, Dan Quayle. 
And I know that Woodward knows Dan Quayle because he was involved in doing like an eight-part series on Quayle back when Quayle was VP. That's how long uh, Bob has been around. And according to the authors, possibly according to Quayle, uh, Dan Quayle said to Pence, Mike, you have no flexibility on this. None. Zero. Forget it. Put it away. But Pence pressed him, saying, were there any grounds to at least pause the certification? Quayle said no, and Pence ultimately agreed. The president lashed out at him. We've heard many versions of this, but here's the, uh, the book version. Pence told Trump he could not thwart the process, that, he was sent, that his only job there was to open the envelopes. Trump, I don't want to be your friend anymore if you don't do this. You've betrayed us. I made you. You were nothing. Okay. Uh, another account of the book says, he said, maybe I picked the wrong man four years ago. So Pence was under tremendous pressure from Trump. Now, what does Donald Trump say about this? Well, he was on Newsmax yesterday. He said uh, that what General Milley is described as doing the book is treason. Also, he said, I did not ever think of attacking China. Well, by the way, Woodward and Custom don't say he was thinking about attacking China. They say General Milley was concerned that he might. Uh, Marco Rubio has already, uh, he's the chairman of Senate Intel, has already written a letter to Biden urging him to fire Rubio for undermining the commander-in-chief, contemplating a treasonous leak of classified information to the Chinese Communist Party. Now, here's a statement that Trump sent out to reporters. And I find it a little contradictory. You can, you can figure out what you think. If the story of dumbass General Mark Milley, so you know this is Trump, the same failed leader who engineered the worst withdrawal from a country, Afghanistan, um, goes on. Um, if what this book says is true, says Trump, then I assume he would be tried for treason, treasons in all caps, in that he would have been dealing with his Chinese counterpart behind the president's back and telling China that he would be giving them notification of attack. Can't do that. The good news is that the story is fake news concocted by a weak and ineffective general together with two authors who I refuse to give an interview to because they write fiction, not fact. Now, you'll recall Woodward's first book on Trump. Uh, of course, Trump gave him something like 18 hours of interviews, and then he felt that he wasn't treated fairly. But a lot of the book were, were on-the-record quotes from Donald Trump as uh, taped by Woodward. Action should be taken immediately against Milley, Trump says. For the record, I never even thought of attacking China. The people that fabricated that story are sick and demented. And the people who print it are just as bad. So here's the thing. And by the way, in the Newsmax interview, um, Trump said that Woodward is a sleaze. Uh, Okay. Um, If the story is true, then Trump has every right, and Republicans have every right, and critics have every right to say what Milley did is so far off the charts that he should be investigated. They can call for his resignation. I mean, it's a pretty dramatic thing for General Milley to have done. But then if you if you accept that as the premise for saying it, then how can you turn around and say the story is fake news and it shouldn't have been printed and these people print fiction? It's one or the other. If the story is BS then just announce it as BS and you don't have to worry about it. But you can't say it's BS and then say, oh, by the way, this guy should go to jail. Anyway, we'll be hearing a lot more about that. There's stuff on Biden in the book too, but I want to move on to some other things, including the California recall. So Gavin Newsom not only surviving 
the recall, which is pretty evident from the latest polls. But he wanted a blowout. This was a landslide victory in this California recall election. 64%, uh, according to the latest count, it's not fully tabulated, uh, voting to retain the Democratic governor in office, 36% voting that he should be removed. Uh, 60% is considered a landslide. And, and look, I just got to say, before I get into my analysis and this political piece, California is a very blue state. It would have been very difficult for Gavin Newsom to lose. Now, you never know. Gray Davis lost in 2003. Arnold Schwarzenegger became governor in a recall election. But unlike Arnold, uh, Larry Elder, uh, who I interviewed on Media Buzz, uh, who's, who has a strong following among conservatives as a radio talk show host, didn't make much effort to kind of move to the middle. I mean, he talked about issues like crime and homelessness and COVID, but he kind of ran a talk radio campaign. He kept getting sucked into culture war stuff. And that enormously helped Newsom because Newsom was able to say, you know, if you vote me out, remember, it's a two-step process, you know, Larry Elder is going to be governor and he believes that he doesn't believe in the minimum wage and he's, he's skeptical on COVID vaccines and all of that. Um, now, at the same time, there was an enormous press assault on Elder. Some of it was just way over the top. Elder is a white supremacist. He's a, he's a black guy from the hood. Uh, Elder doesn't tell the truth. Elder this, that, and the other thing. But some of it was fair game. and Some of it was just the liberal media going after uh, this Republican talk show host. So Politico has a back behind-the-scenes piece saying that in the summer, when the polls looked really tight, uh, the top strategist for Newsom, Ace Smith, uh, said it was like, uh, well, COVID, the war is over. It's ended to O.S. Uh, the turning point came when, in their view, when uh, Newsom moved very aggressively to adopt vaccine mandates and mask mandates. Popular in California, although obviously a lot of people really don't like them as well. Newsom uh, did an avalanche of spending, portraying himself as running against Larry Elder. Well, actually, he's running against the entire field. It's just that Elder, because no uh, big-name mainstream Republican candidate ran, Elder, by default, with 20 23% of the vote in the recall, became um, the opposition. And he, uh, Newsom was able to paint, paint him as anti-science and a clone of Trump. And so a lot of now strategists are saying, see, this is what you got to do. you got to run against Trump. Any Republican is a clone of Trump. And on my show, I asked Elder about a bit of a flip-flop because he had, uh, in one interview, he had said that Joe Biden won the election fairly and squarely. And then he got a lot of heat from the Trump side, and he went on a radio interview, and he said, no, 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 I want a mulligan. He wanted a, you know, when golf would be a do-over. Um, and he said, oh, no, there were all kinds of shenanigans, and he kind of came around to Joe Biden didn't win the election fairly and squarely. So Sean Clegg, senior Newsom strategist, tells Politico it was about making the campaign a referendum on the opposition, not just a kind of dunking booth and exercise on the incumbent. Well, to some extent, every campaign, every incumbent tries to do that. You know, you may not like some of the things I did. You may not like me. Are you going to get this other person? Uh, I don't think so. Um, and, you know, the, basically their closing argument was a yes vote for the recall means electing a pro-Trump, anti-vaccine Republican. That was the argument. This is another quote from Ace Smith. Uh, Newsom relentlessly tethered Elder to Trump. And that's all he needed to do because Democrats got worried. 
The Democrats turned out. You know, the only way Newsom was going to lose is if the Democrats sat, sat home. They didn't particularly like Gavin, or they just thought, you know, that some recall election is going to win. I don't need to turn out and vote. So that was the thing. Now they're trying to take this lesson nationally, that it's a huge thing. Don't be timid on COVID, says the aforementioned ace. We have to go out and figure out that not only is it really good policy and bold policy, but it's actually really good politics. Well, there's a lot of people who feel very strongly against vaccine mandates who aren't necessarily anti-vax. You are using the power of the government to force people to do things. That's a debate that will continue on and on. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. I want to save some time here to talk about uh, a follow-up Wall Street Journal story about Facebook. I mentioned a big expose yesterday about how Facebook maintains this list of celebrities, uh, politicians, journalists, basically people who are moderately well-known or very well-known, and and they're exempt from the rules. They can can be bullying. They can um, incite violence, and they don't get punished. Obviously, one exception to the exception is Donald J. Trump. But there's also this part about Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. Uh, Here's the lead. About a year ago, teenager Anastasia Vlasova started seeing a therapist. She had developed an eating disorder and had a clear idea of what led to it, her time on Instagram. She joined at 13. She was spending three hours a day entranced by the seemingly perfect lives and bodies of the fitness influencers who posted on the app. Uh, She's now 18. She says, when I went on Instagram, all I saw were images of chiseled bodies, perfect abs, and women doing 100 burpees in 10 minutes. Uh, Confession here, I don't know exactly what a burpee is, but it sounds like it's hard to do in 10 minutes. Um, And at the same time, Facebook itself was studying this phenomenon uh, in an internal message board reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. Quote, 32% of teen girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. Comparisons on Instagram can change how young women view and describe themselves. The past three years, Facebook's conducting studies on how the photo sharing app affects its millions of young users. So more than 40% of Instagram users are under 22. And about 22 million teens log on Instagram, Instagram every day. On average, teens in the U.S. spend 50% more time on Instagram than they do on Facebook, which I'm sure they view as the older person's app. Uh, One slide from, again, this was the internal research by Facebook. We make body image issues worse for one in three teenage girls. Think about that. So here's a company that knows it is contributing to this problem where... um, Young girls who may not be overweight at all uh, have these body image problems, or maybe they're a few pounds overweight and have these body image problems. It can lead to anorexia. It can lead to all kinds of terrible consequences. Now, publicly, Facebook's like, hey, nothing nothing to see here, nothing to worry about. So here's Mark Zuckerberg testifying just this past March uh, at a hearing on the Hill. The research that we've seen is that using social apps to connect with other people can have positive mental health effects. Uh, The head of Instagram, Adam Mosseri, told reporters in May that research he had seen suggests the app's effects on teen well-being is likely quite small. And in a recent interview, he told the journal, in no way do I mean to diminish these issues. Some of the issues mentioned in the story aren't necessarily widespread, but their impact on people may be huge. Now, I have to say, in fairness, long before there was a Facebook, before 
Mark Zuckerberg went to Harvard and kind of invented this thing in his dorm room. You know, young women and teenage girls had body image problems. You know, they, they looked at women's magazines and everybody was a perfect 10 and, you know, that they would pose in bathing suits and, you know, models would be thin. Some models would say they had to starve themselves. So Facebook didn't and Instagram didn't create this problem. Uh, in a way, they reflect society creating this problem. And also, you know, it's not like that Facebook, this is not about hate speech or bullying where Facebook should kick people off. This is what women, models, influencers, and others choose to post on Facebook. So I don't immediately know um, how you solve the problem. But it does seem to me that Facebook plays a role here. And where I do fault Facebook, and this is so typical of this social network, is that internally they have the evidence. They're worried about it. They're studying about it. Are we contributing to this societal problem? What can we do about it? And then when they're interviewed or Zuckerberg goes up to the hill, it's like, oh, you know, it's, everyone loves us. It's great. Our app has so many positive effects. And, you know, they're misleading. You could even say they're lying. They know this is a problem. It may be a difficult problem to solve, but they haven't been honest. And so this terrific reporting by the journal, uh, I think, is letting us know about the double standards there uh, and about the more insidious effects of Instagram. Uh, before I sign off here, um, there was a demonstration, an abortion rights demonstration, um, the other night outside of the home of Justice Brett Kavanaugh, Chevy Chase, Maryland. And the police had put out warnings that there was going to be huge traffic, they were going to block off streets, there were a lot of police cars there. Only about 50 people turned out. But, there, I mean, there was at least one store that closed, a lot of people were worried. And I have to say, and I say this about both sides, I don't care if you're a liberal demonstrator or conservative demonstrator, people have a right to protest, of course. You want to have a gathering in your local community. You want to go march on the mall. Uh, this Saturday, by the way, there's a big, you know, pro-Trump MAGA rally that some people are worried about the security there. I think we'll, there'll be a lot of law enforcement. But the idea of going to someone's house where their kids are there, their spouses are there, and, you know, shouting with a megaphone or carrying signs, I just think is wrong. I just think it is horrendous. These are human beings trying to do their job. You hate Brett Kavanaugh, fine. Go online and vent. Go to a demonstration. Do whatever you want. You don't go to the justice's house. And, you know, how would some of these people have felt, these abortion rights supporters, if a bunch of conservatives went to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg's house or, or today went to Stephen Breyer's house or Sonia Sotomayor's house? or Elena Kagan's house. It's, it's, it's all of a piece of like the people are sitting in a restaurant with their families, Sarah Huckabee Sanders having a meal, and somebody decides to kick them out or start screaming at them, embarrass them in front of their families. You know, that shouldn't be part of our American culture. So uh, what happened is apparently there were no incidents, there was no violence, nobody was arrested. But Chuck Grassley, at a hearing yesterday at the Judiciary Committee, called this protest another blatant attempt to intimidate the judiciary and anyone who disagrees with the radical agenda. And by the way, it wasn't just Republican Senator Grassley. Dick Durbin, Democrat, Pat Leahy, 
Democrat joined in and said, people who are unhappy with what the Supreme Court does should express themselves at the ballot box or outside the courthouse. Yeah, go to the Supreme Court, march all you want. Shout yourself hoarse. That's fine. That's the American way to protest. Don't go harassing people at home. It's just awful. Um, my column today is about COVID on foxnews.com and the whole Nicki Minaj flap. I, um, I talked to you about this yesterday and I just said, you know what? Um, you know, on the one hand, who cares what Nicki Minaj thinks? You know, the thing was that she, I mean, talk about I know a guy who knows a guy. She has 22 million followers on Twitter. And she tweets, you know, uh, you should be wary of the vaccine because my cousin in Trinidad has a friend she doesn't even talk to who took the vaccine and his testicles swelled up. Now, that takes balls, you know, because she hasn't had any idea there's any uh, correlation here. In fact, Anthony Fauci was asked about this on TV and said, no, it doesn't have any effect on the testicles. This guy, I mean, who knows? He could have gotten an STD. It could have been anything. And so this started, she got just, the hip hop star just got hammered over this. Joy Reid went after her. Then she went after Joy Reid in a very ugly way. I and mean, I don't agree with Joy Reid on all that much, but Joy Reid was right here. And then Nicki Minaj plays the race card against her, you know, about black woman trying to take down another black woman at the behest of the white man. I mean, what is she thinking? Just looks awful. And Joy Reid had said, I'm a hip hop fan. I'm your fan. This is sad. Please don't do this. So, and finally, uh, Sad to hear of the passing of Norm MacDonald, former SNL guy, uh, frequent talk show guest. You know, a lot of people love this guy, judging from the reaction I'm seeing on live. And the thing is, he just was an original. I mean, he was a character. He was always sort of a little bit off, like you always wanted to keep watching him because you weren't sure what he was going to say next. He was very funny, but he wasn't funny in that sort of cookie-cutter way. He had his own kind of twisted brand of humor that I think is what made people just go crazy over him. Uh, it, it, it's sad. He was in his early 60s, Norm MacDonald, but he leaves uh, behind quite a legacy. And with that, I thank everybody for listening. Hope you'll listen every day. Hope you subscribe. Apple iTunes is one place that you can do that. We're back here tomorrow with more Buzzmeet. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.